Shalom and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Gad Dishi. We're in Parashat Toledot, Perek Chav Zayin. We're going to be discussing the episode where Yaakov disguises himself as Esav and takes the blessings that Yitzchak intended to give to Esav. Uh, the structure of the Perek breaks down in uh, quite a detailed way. Sukim Aleph to Dalit speaks about Yitzchak's request to Esav to bring him the food from a hunt and he'll bless him. Sukim Mehei Yud discuss how Rivka tells Yaakov to get goats and she'll give him the food to get his own blessing. Uh, Psukim Yud Aleph and Yud Bet, Yaakov responds that he's concerned and he'll be cursed by Yitzchak. Pasuk Yud Gimel, Rivka reassures Yaakov. Pasuk Yud Dalid has lots of action. Yaakov does things, Rivka does things, leading to Psukim Tetvav to Yud Zayin, 15 to 17. Rivka sets up Yaakov to successfully impersonate Esav, but not really. Pasuk Yud Chet, Yaakov enters to Yitzchak. And Pasuk Yud Tet, Yitzchak asks Yaakov, who are you? Uh, we'll finish the uh, breakdown of structure of the uh, Perak and the Parasha in the upcoming lectures. The, we're going to be dealing with Psukim Aleph through Yutet uh, today. And where we are holding in terms of the Jacob cycle, we're now on the third round. We're in uh, section C of the Michael Fishbane Jacob cycle. We're going to be dealing with themes of deception, uh, with the ideas of bracha, here the bracha being uh, taken. A fear of a sav and a flight from the land that's going to take us to the end of uh, the parasha, to the beginning of Perkhafhet. Pasuk Aleph. Vahi ki zaken Yitzchak, vatichena enav mereot. Vayikra et esav benohagadol, vayomen elav beni, vayomen elav hineni. So it came to pass that Yitzchak was old and his eyes grew dim from seeing, meaning he was blind. And he called to Esav, his bigger son, and told him, My son. And he responded, Here I am, Hineni. We see that Yitzchak is old. That's one of the reasons why he'll later think that he's also uh, soon going to die. His eyesight has uh, failed him. He thinks that uh, that's a sign of the uh, deterioration of his physical uh, abilities and, and body. Uh, the truth is that we know that at this point, Esav is already going to be married. He has been 40 years old when that happened, and that puts Yitzchak at 100 years old. thinks he's uh, dying. Uh, the truth of the matter is he's going to live a very long life after this episode, and uh, that's a great message for uh, understanding that disabilities don't uh, paralyze people for the end of days, even though Chazal imply that Sumach Hashuv Kemet, but Yitzchak has many good years left, but he believes he is on his uh, ending days of his physical uh, time on the planet. Uh, many of the Mefrashim are divided about why it is that Yitzchak is blind. The Rashbam and the Radak give us the simple answer that that's because he's old, and from old age he wasn't able to see any longer. The Radak adds a different idea of Yisurei Saddikim, uh, punishment to uh, righteous people and different midrashim in regards to the daughters-in-law, meaning the wives of Esav, that they used to do avodazara and they used to have incense, and this smoke would uh, uh, bother his eyes to the point where he wouldn't be able to see it anymore, uh, implying his uh, intolerance for avodazara. Uh, also trying to introduce some blame in the equation in terms of uh, why it is that Yitzchak isn't able to see. Rashi, on the other hand, gives us three different reasons why Yitzchak is blind, none of them having to do with old age. One, referring back to a midrash about how when Yitzchak was on the uh, altar of the Akedah, skies opened up 
and the uh, angels were crying over what was in the impending slaughter of Yitzhak, and those tears entered Yitzhak's eyes. And then there was some really, really, really long delay, and then finally Yitzhak grew blind from that uh, years later. The other reason, which is more important for us here, is that Rashi says that he grew blind in order for Yaakov to get away with the masquerade. And it's important that Rashi read here that there's divine intervention uh, on behalf of uh, allowing this masquerade that's going to take place succeed, meaning that there's justification for Yaakov and the means that he's using. Uh, the entire stage was set uh, through divine plan uh, and having the uh, makeup of Yitzchak come to be that he would be blind at this time. Finally, another reason Rashi gives in regards to the Akedah, also uh, another Midrash saying that it was the smoke from the ram that was replacing Yitzchak at the Akedah that entered Yitzchak's eyes, which would also imply that at the time he was still bound. In any case, it's the idea of the Akedah that Rashi is stressing here, that that's one of these prime moving forces for Yitzchak. That fear of his uh, not being able to continue is what's driving him to give these brachot. It's behind the blindness. Um, of course, we know that literarily, the idea of being blind implies a lack of knowledge. We see this also with Yaakov later when there's going to be a switch of Rachel with Leah. Uh, it's also hinted to by the Sforno here where he says that he was blind to the actions of Esav and did not rebuke him, similarly the way that Eli did not rebuke his children in Shemuel Aleph. And so we have the idea of literary blindness implying a lack of knowledge. In addition, the text here is uh, jam-packed with hints about uh, taking stances on what's coming up in the following parak, which is a difficult parak theologically and a difficult parak in terms of how we view our uh, venerable characters of uh, the Avot and how do we deal with that. We'll hopefully have a word of that later. The uh, the text here refers to Esav as Benoha Gadol, his biggest son, not the Bechor, meaning the text is acknowledging that the birthright, the Bechor, was sold already to Yaakov, as we read in Perak Kafhei, and uh, therefore he doesn't warrant to be called Esav Bechor. Later on, uh, Yaakov will put Anochi Esav Bechorecha as the title to Esav, meaning he himself uh, was not so sure that that cell was binding. He would present himself in the mouth of Esav as still being the Bechor. Language here of Hineni, that Esav responds with the word Hineni, uh, puts Esav in uh, great uh, company. Uh, not many people in Tanakh are recorded as responding with Hineni. The only ones that we really have are Avraham, Yaakov, Yosef, and Moshe. That's in the Torah. In the Navi'im, we get Shemuel, we get the Gera Malaki, and we get God telling us Hineni in the time of the Geulah. Uh, basically, this response of Hineni is a response to someone receiving a calling from God or responding to an important individual who is about to embark on a faithful mission. And here, Esav is about to embark on something faithful. The text sounds this alarm to help us understand that it seems that something big is about to happen. This word only appears 14 times in all of Tanakh, and Esav's usage of the word Hineni, and the text the recording of it here in Pasuk Aleph, is really setting the stage for the reader to recognize that this is going to be a faithful moment, and something big is about to come down. Pasuk Bet, and Yitzchak tells Esav, Here I have become old, I don't know when I'm going to die. Uh, indeed, as we mentioned, Yitzchak lives until 180, which might be 80 years more from where we are here. It might also imply that he was blind for some time already before he came to this 
conclusion that it was time to give over uh, a bracha. Uh, but in any case, this is Yitzchak giving his intro to Esav, that this is the reason why he's been called in. So it's on the, the supposed deathbed, but of course it's nowhere near his deathbed. Pasuk Gimel, Ve'ata sana chelecha, telyecha ve'kashtecha, ve'tse hasadeh ve'suda li'sayid, va'aselim at'amim ka'asher ahavti, ve'havi'ali ve'ochela, ba'avur tevalchecha nafshi v'terem amut. And now, lift up your tools, your bow, and your uh, arrows, meaning the things that are normally in the quiver, that's uh, hung up, uh, the teliyacha, something that's talui. Uh, Rashi also brings teliyacha, could be the sword, but it seems to be fitting more the, the quiver with the arrows that go together with the bow. And go out to the field and hunt for me a hunt. And make for me delicacies that I, the way I like, and bring them to me, and so I shall eat, in order that my soul bless you before I die. So this idea of sending Esav into the field throws us back to Perek Kafhei, telling us about why it is that Yitzchak loved Esav, Kitzayid Befiv, this is their special bond, this is the point where he's sending him into that place to come back with some food. Um, the way he describes the food is making delicacies that he loves. Uh, the Rashbam and the Ramban want to say that the plan from the get-go at this point is that Yitzchak wants to give Birkat Avraham and Yerushat Haaretz to Esav, uh, as opposed to Radak, who says that those brachot were never intended for Esav, and those were meant to pass divinely, without any interference or statement on, on Yitzchak's uh, part, just as Avraham didn't formally give over the blessings to Yitzchak, Hashem gave them over to Yitzchak, as we saw in the Nevoah and Perek Hence, Perek is also not such an interlude as uh, Fishbane may have uh, indicated. Uh, the Radak says that Yitzchak knew Esav was not worthy and he wasn't a good guy, so uh, he asked him to go ahead and get some food for him that he'd become worthy of some type of blessing. So we see that we've really got a lot of different opinions that are somewhat all over the map regarding who knows what about uh, which brachot are about to be given. Uh, there's no real firm footing at this point in the psukim, but everybody is uh, on the same point in, in the emotional map, so to speak, in regards to why he loves Esav, and what the Pasuk is telling us here about the hunting. By Yaakov, it's not clear through the Pasukim whether or not uh, he intended to give Yaakov any brachot. Uh, back to the idea of the meal, the Bechor Shor, and the Chizkuni have a very extreme read on why it is that we want a meal here, and they say that Yitzchak indeed knew of the sale of the birthright, and they really wanted to be able to trump and bypass uh, any statutory rights that might go along with the birthright and the uh, really bypassed the sale altogether. And so there's this intentional diversion and usurping of Jacob's uh, rights, of Yaakov's rights that he bought. And so this better justifies Yaakov's actions as the text and the narrative continues. The Bechor Shor saying that this is really a midah, keneged midah, that yes, you, you, Esav, lost your birthright on behalf of a meal of the Nazid Adashim. I, Yitzchak, am going to reinstate for you your brachot through this meal that you're going to give us. So it's definitely a very powerful statement that Yitzchak is intentionally uh, cutting Yaakov out of what is due to him. And all of our synapses are firing off here. We have very high stakes early on in the game. It helps to recall that the Bechor Shor partook historically in polemics with the Christians. And so he needed to paint as sympathetic a picture as possible for what Yaakov did. This passage, this uh, peric that we're dealing with is part of the very hot topics, as you will, to show how Jews cheat and are no longer the chosen people and why we were replaced with the Christians. So this is a very important point to 
keep in mind when the Bechor Shor takes his extreme position of how intentionally Yitzchak is trying to cut Yaakov out. Pasuk hey, v'rivka shomat, b'daber Yitzchak el Esav beno, v'yelech Esav hasadeh lasud sa'id lehavi. And Rivka heard when Yitzchak was speaking to Esav, his son, and Esav went out to the field in order to have the, bring in the hunt. So this Rivka shomat, Rivka heard, it sounds like it could be that Rivka overheard, meaning she was happening to hear what was going on, but it's also a possible, possibility at this point in the narrative, there was no reason to suspect Rivka of coming up with some other plan to divert the bracha away from Esav. She might have well been in the tent, visible to Esav, and uh, listening as Yitzchak was speaking to Esav. She may have just been present, and she was hearing what it is that went on there. The Radak points out that Rivka's position is that she doesn't know that Yaakov will receive a blessing despite Yitzchak not giving him one, that it will come automatically to him, as the Radak said out earlier. Uh, And certainly Yitzchak was not going to steal the brachot from Yaakov just for a meal, which is clearly a reaction to the Bechor Shor, uh, the Bechor Shor uh, Perush coming out basically when the Radak was about 10 years old, so he had uh, just uh, come out with, with this Perush. Uh, interestingly, the text is stressing all of the relational aspects, El Esav Beno, this is uh, Yitzchak's son, not their son. And so Yitzchak is speaking to Esav, it seems to be at this point already the text has begun pairing up uh, the people. We have Yitzchak with Esav, we have Rivka with Yaakov, and as uh, Michael Fishbane points out, uh, this is one of those literary techniques uh, that is being used in order to uh, set us up for the interactions between the groups, as opposed to just having it be uh, a one-on-one of Yaakov versus Esav, uh, two to a scene. Basically, we're not going to get everybody in the same room at the same time. There's going to be this separation of the uh, characters, always only two at a time on stage. Uh, continuing on in the text, Verevka Amra El Yaakov Bena Lemor, Hineshamati et Avicha Medaber El Esav Achicha Lemor, Havia Litzaid, Vaseli Matamim Veochela, Vabarecha Lifne Adonai Lifne Moti, Veatabini Shema Bekolila Sherani Metzava Otach. And so Rivka told to Yaakov her son, saying, I heard your father speak to your brother Esav, saying, bring me a hunt, then make me delicacies, and I will eat, and I will bless you before God, in front of God, uh, before I die. And now, my son, heed my voice and do as I command you. Here, Rivka adds, Vabarcha lifne Hashem, which Yitzchak did not make a mention of in terms of introducing God into the equation. The Mefarshim are split into how to read these words, lifne Hashem, and why it is that Rivka added them. The uh, Rabab ex- explains that the, she believes that the blessing is going to be a prophetic act, uh, or perhaps, as the Radak explains, it's in order to convince Yaakov how important it is to listen to her. It possibly could also be that Rivka adds that the bracha will need to be in accordance with the will of God, uh, as Rashi explains that uh, Yitzchak uh, never heard Ravi Avod Sa'ir, Rivka never shared that information with him. The Ramban also had that position earlier, that she did not share the Nevu'ah, and therefore only she is the one who knows that the blessings will only rest upon the younger, on Yaakov. Finally, the Rashbam explains Lifneh Hashem means in the name of Hashem, that Yitzchak will bless the boy in the name of Hashem. And while Yitzchak doesn't say that he's going to do that, indeed, 
when Yitzchak begins the bracha that he believes belongs to Esav, he's going to begin with V'yitel lecha ha'elohim. He's going to start, he's going to have God be introduced into the bracha. Pasuk Tet, lechna elatzon. We're continuing now with what it is that Rivka is going to command Yaakov to do. Lechna elatzon. And she told him, Now go to the flocks and take from me from there two fat goats, kid goats, and I will make them delicacies to your father as he loves, and you'll bring them to your father and he will eat in order for him to bless you before he dies. She tells him to go to the sheep, the Rashbam says that this represents the connection that Yaakov has with Rivka, the Yoshev Ohalim, Ohalim referring to his job as a shepherd, uh, the same way that Rivka is the Yoshevet Ohalim, as we mentioned earlier. Sheep is really Yaakov's special bond, his characteristic, the same way that Esav was being called upon to go into the fields. Uh, the goats, the Rashbam say, uh, were being used in order to foresee the use of their skins later on in the deception. She does not accept that understanding, doesn't propose that understanding at least. He wants to say that one was uh, midrashically for Korban Pesach, probably trying to indicate that Yaakov will represent the household, but there's really no time to get into analyzing what Rashi is trying to get to here. And some want to explain why there were two goats, because perhaps she already thought of the idea of the disguise and she would need two to make out the, the entire outfit, but that's not so clear because we're not really using so many parts of the skins of the animal she's just putting on his arms and his neck later on in the text it's not really something that you need two full animals for one would suffice especially if you're using fat the goats the two sounds more like there was a particular cut of meat that Yitzchak liked and loved in order to make it his delicacy maybe it was a liver maybe it was something there's only uh, one of or a small amount of in each animal or a special lean part uh, lean cut that they want to get that to and therefore they needed two to get a good sized portion out of them in general, just the amount of meat uh, would seem to be, uh, you know, exaggerated amounts. You know, an average goat might yield about 13 kilos of uh, net meat that you'd be able to eat. So you don't need that much for uh, one person's uh, meal. Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor uh, says that uh, in doing all of this, Yaakov is just protecting his own interest as Yitzchak was trying to cheat him out of the birthright. And Esav sold and swore to uphold the sale to Yaakov of the uh, birthright. And so Yaakov is about to be a victim and he's saving what is duly his. Uh, in my book, I point out that everything up until this point, uh, the entire disguise and the masquerade has not been mentioned. Rivka makes no mention of taking Esav's bracha. Uh, Rivka wanted Yaakov to get uh, in front of Ishak and to get his own bracha without a masquerade. He wanted Yaakov to come in with his own special bond and she was willing to throw her own special bond together with it in order to have Yaakov win over a blessing from Yitzchak in his own merit, to have his own bracha. The, the idea of the deception is only going to come up now later in Yaakov's reaction and that chain reaction will begin as soon as Yaakov mentions his fear of getting caught. Pasuk Yud Aleph Vayomer Yaakov el Rivka imo Hen Esav ahi ish sair and Yaakov said to Rivka, his mother, Here my brother Esav is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man, meaning either without hair or a different type of grooming. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I will be in his eyes as a deceiver, and then I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. 
So here we have the idea of meta'atea, of someone who misleads from the word to'eh, uh, as the dot mikra points out, to'eh with a taf and to'eh with a tet are uh, related. Usually to'eh with a taf means to wander around and with a tet means to be mistaken, but they are uh, interchangeable. Here Yaakov is concerned that he might get cursed. Bechor Shor says that that curse that Yaakov is concerned about is that he might even lose his regular share in the inheritance. Uh, if he was looking here to get the Bechor share of the inheritance, here he might lose everything if he gets found out, so to speak. This assuming that the ruse and the disguise was the initial plan. Uh, as we pointed out earlier, Yaakov and Esav must be identical twins. The Regio also pointed out that they are identical twins. Uh, there's this epigenetical uh, difference in regards to the hair, uh, the amount of hair, or perhaps they are exactly twins, and it's just an idea of how they groom their hair. So it's not so far-fetched to confuse the two, Yaakov and Esav. Uh, it's normally understood that Yaakov here, uh, whether he understood or misunderstood the Rivka, he's not worried about the actual morality of what it is that's being proposed, that he's about to undertake to take on Esav's identity. Uh, whether or not because of the Bechor Shor's idea that he feels justified in protecting his legal interest that he bought at the uh, Nazid Adashim. Uh, however, he is worried about getting caught, uh, which seems to imply that uh, regardless of his claim to uh, being correct, it would still be a cause for getting a curse. Uh, Rivka's response is, V'tome lo imo, alai kedaratecha beni, ach shma bekoli velech kachli. And Rivka tells him, Upon me, my son, will be your curse. But please obey my voice and go fetch for me. So here, Rivka's response about taking on the curse for Yaakov has a number of different explanations. The Rasag, Rabbi Yosagalgaon, explains that if Yitzchak were to curse Yaakov, it would be incumbent upon Rivka to beseech him and have the curse be annulled. The Sforno and the Radak say that she will take upon the curse for herself because she was the one who caused such a curse. Uh, the Chizkuni brings other possibilities. Number one, Rivka says, oh, there's nothing to fear because she knows the prophecy of Rav Yavod Sa'ir and feels that this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Uh, secondly, uh, if you're afraid that he will feel you, you should know that even if he does feel you and realizes that you're Yaakov, he'll understand that you didn't come up with this all on your own He'll know that I was involved and he'll curse me, meaning Rivka. Uh, finally, the Chizkuni suggests the idea of is, oh, you're worried about his curse. You should worry about my curse if you don't listen to me. So now you should listen to me and go get the goats. Uh, Rav Bechor Shor says that the idea of the taking upon the curse is that if he's going to lose all of his inheritance, Rivka says she will provide him with an inheritance out of the monies that belong to her. But really, all of this doesn't make any sense. And the speech doesn't fit in with what it is that they're trying to be relayed. Uh, if Yitzchak feels Yaakov without a disguise, why is it that Yaakov will only be like someone who's misleading him? Kim ta'atea, with that kafa dimayon, with that type of a uh, comparison. It, it really would be much worse than that. It would for sure be that he was misleading him. And it would be even beyond that. So normally it's understood that Yaakov is understanding that there's going to be a switch of identities here. But perhaps really this is a misunderstanding. And that uh, the Ramban points out that when Yaakov is explaining why he's concerned about getting caught, about Yitzchak feeling him, why wasn't he worried about getting caught because of the differential on voices? We see later that Yitzchak picks up on the differences in voices. And so the Ramban answers that they either sounded alike, 
which kind of negates Yitzchak's later uh, comment that the voice is the voice of Yaakov and the hands of the hands of Esav, um, or Yaakov was good at impersonations. However, I would like to suggest that maybe they thought that the bringing of the food in and of itself at the very beginning, when he comes into the tent, would be the moment of blessing without having to wait for Yitzchak to eat everything and get blessed. It's clear that being that, ya- that Yitzchak is blind, that whoever it is, Yaakov and Reisav, are feeding him. But it's possible that when they first come in, right away, they'll get the blessing for having prepared the meal. And as the Ramban says, Yaakov is not worried about getting caught. And really, when he says, Ulai avi, It's not about taking on Esav's identity, but rather that Yitzchak might actually bump up against him while he's uh, being fed, etc., that would cause him to realize that this is not Esav. Uh, but perhaps still now, even after all of this, Rivka is suggesting that Yaakov go in as Yaakov. As we recall, she made no mention of the masquerade because this wasn't the plan. When Yaakov raises the issue, she doesn't say, oh, of course, I thought of all of that, and I'm going to disguise you, and the goats are here for the skins. She just says, don't worry, Yitzchak will not curse you. It might also be that Yaakov at this point also didn't mean that, oh, Esav is hairy and now I'm smooth, so how am I going to get away with this? But rather, Esav is hairy, and I'm not hairy. So if I go in and feed Yitzchak, my father, in the hopes of getting a blessing without saying a word, and then get a blessing as soon as I get in just for providing the meal, then Yitzchak brushes up against me and sees I'm not Esav. He'll think that I'm trying to trick him and be Esav, and that's why I'm going to be a kimta'ateya, as if I'm trying to deceive him, but I hadn't really said anything. And so maybe Yaakov is not trying to be Esav yet, even at this point. And that is why Rivka's response is enough for him, because otherwise she really doesn't address any of his concerns of what they're really speaking about in terms of stealing Esav's identity. Uh, the whole idea of stealing Esav's identity is very absurd, and it's really hard to believe that that was the first thing that popped into Rivka's head when she overheard or heard of the impending blessing. So, however, we do see that Rivka dresses up uh, Yaakov as Esav, and Yaakov himself presents himself as Esav in another moment, we'll see that. Um, so when does this idea of the impersonation take off? Well, well, we'll see as we continue on. In Pasuk Yudalid, Vayelech vayikach vayaveli imo, imo matamim ka'asher ahev aviv. And he went and he brought and he gave it to his mother, and his mother made delicacies as his father loves. So it becomes at this point that they are pairing off of the people again. We have Rivka with Yaakov, Yitzchak with Esav, and it's really more than just a who's going to provide the meal and who's going to get the blessing. It's really more battling out who provides for Yitzchak and what do they provide and who is more beloved. The text stresses Ka'asher Ahev in regards to the food. The text is trying to focus all of us away from the people and onto the objects. And we know that the idea of Yitzchak loving the, the hunt is coming from a very deep place within Yitzchak. It's not about gluttony. But now that we are looking at it, what does the hunt represent for Yitzchak? Does it represent the thrill of the bringing of the outside world into the blind old man? Uh, which will be preferred? Will it be that or will it be Rivka's meal that reflects the nurturing love at home and home-cooked meal and heartwarming love? Is Yitzchak seeking people to help him stay alive or to help him live? We should all be thinking about all of these questions because as important as it is to know what the text says, it's also more important to know what the text is saying. What is it saying to you, to us, to all of humanity? 
So we will move on. Everyone should move, work on these questions on their own. Pasuk Tetva. Vatikach Rivkaet Begde Esav Benah Gadol HaChamudot Asher Ita Babayit Vatalbeshet Yaakov Benah HaKatan Veet Olot Gedeye HaIzim Hedbisha Al Yada Ve'al Chalkat Sabarav Vatitenet HaMatamim Veet HaLechem Asher Asata Beyad Yaakov Benah And Rivka took the garments of Esav, her elder son, uh, the finery that was with her in the house, and put them on Yaakov, her smaller son, and the skins of the kids she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she placed the dish and the bread that she had made in the hand of Yaakov, her son. And again, we have all of the relationships, again, always being focused on her son. Uh, this is the masquerading of Yaakov, um, the idea again of big and small, not of Bechor and Sa'ir. Uh, and as comical as it all looks, as we pointed out earlier, this is someone who is over 40 years of age, uh, even if they're identical twins, you have uh, his mother dressing him in order to look like Esav. Uh, the clothing is there also for the sense of the feel, but also for the smell, uh, the personal body smell of Esav, as well as the smell of the field. Later, Yitzchak will make mention of the smell of the field that comes from the clothing. Um, the word Hamudot here, referring to the clothes of Esav, Yer says perhaps the word should really be understood as Hamutzot, meaning it has a particular stench. He also brings this in regards to a comparison with the Nevoah of Mizeba Me'edom, Chamutz Begadim Mi Botzra. So Chamutz Begadim is related to Edom in the Nevoah, and here also perhaps it's referring to Esav's clothes as Chamutz, having a particular stench. Uh, this would perhaps fit in with the Rashbam, who says that the clothes here were the clothes that Esav would wear to serve Yitzchak food. It was like the smelly apron that would be the constant uh, garment that he would wear. However, the Rashi, Radak, and Bechor Shor say these clothes are the finery. These are the clothes that are especially clean. have a special cologne uh, added to them. It has that fresh outdoor smell of the pine or of uh, freshly cut grass or something that would make a memorable mention uh, to Yitzchak. The Mat'amim uh, here is usually understood to be the delicacies of meat. Others want to say the lechem here is korbani lachmi, it's the uh, type of a reference to meat. However, in Bereshit, lechem is usually referred to as bread, not in regards to, to the meat. And the uh, matamim in that case would be just yummy treats. Uh, but we should all pay attention that she just gives them all of these things to Yaakov. There are no instructions, there's no script, there's no plan. Uh, there's no go ahead and present yourself as a sav, although it seems to be implied explicitly by just doing all of this. Uh, but could it be that even even now, Rivka is really just wanting him to try plan A and get his own bracha? Something to keep in mind. Uh, as we look in Pasuk Yud Zayin, we also stress the idea of the lechem, uh, if we assume that this means the bread, as the Radak points out, that she had made hot, fresh bread, which is also time-consuming and also not part of the menu. It's kind of conspicuous, it sticks out. It's really part of Rivka's special bond with Yitzchak, uh, which is also supported from the Rashi that we learned at the end of Perekhaf Dalet, which was one of the things that Rivka brought was If she really wanted Yaakov to succeed in pulling off being a Sav, she should have omitted this food item from the list. It's something that really relates right away to Rivka and her connection to Yaakov and her connection with Yitzchak. And this is something that would not have been if it was a Sav coming in. Pasuk Yudhet, and here we have the Pasuk says that Yaakov came before his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, Hineni, who are you, my son? 
So in the Akedah, uh, we had Yitzchak calling Avid, my father, to Avraham, and Avraham responding, Hineni. Now the disguised Yaakov says Avid Yitzchak, to Yitzchak, his father, and Yitzchak responds, Hineni. I may have even forgotten to actually mention that Yitzchak uh, was someone who actually says Hineni as well so earlier, and uh, so here it is. Uh, the next sentence at the Akedah was a misleading and untruthful statement for Yitzchak, Elohim when Abraham was knowing fully well he was intending to bring Yitzchak. And at the same time, it's also true here that the next sentence is going to be a misleading one. There are other linguistic and thematic parallels to the Akedah, but there's no time for all that right now. Uh, note that Yaakov only says one word, Avi, and already Yitzchak is asking the critical question that shifts everything to plan B from the get-go. At this point, the whole thing could be over in one second. He could simply say, I am Yaakov, and I brought you your favorite food, and I'm here for a blessing. Nothing has happened yet to force his hand. So this is going to be our cliffhanger till the next lecture to see how Yaakov will respond to that perhaps existential question of, Who are you, my son?